Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to an HBC special report. I'm John Adams along with Chris Kendall, and today's special report is titled Freedom Dumbed Down. Mr. Kendall, how are you doing today? Good friend, how are you doing? Hey, I heard it's hot I'm out doing- there in California, and that's unusual. But of course, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Al Gore tried to tell you, man. Well, luckily, um, I live in America, and I have the freedom to believe Al Gore, or not to believe him. But that's what we're going to be discussing today, the word free, the word freedom. Um, what is it? Uh, what exactly are we talking about here? Um, I've got a lot of stuff to cover, so I'm going to get right into it. I've just got stacks and stacks of books here, folks. i got to get to every single one of these before the end of the show. I'm not kidding. Um, uh, so, anyways, um, let's look at the word free. Okay. Now, the word free uh, is Old English derived freo, freon. Uh, from Dutch, you get uh, verge. It's V-R-I-J. Uh, in the German, you get Frey. And all of those say that it is love shared by a friend. And that is where this word allegedly comes from. Um, in the Latin, you have also... Well, it's interesting that a priest in certain, um, in certain sects is known as a friar... And friar actually comes from the word frere, meaning brother. Okay. okay. Um, it's also interesting that there's a Nordic, because uh, apparently apparently the, the connotation here for free comes from the German frey, free, F-R-E-I. But there's also a Germanic Nordic god with the name of frere, F-R-E-Y-R. And he is the twin brother of the goddess Freya. And Freya is basically the goddess Isis for Nordic Germanic paganism. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, um, so yeah, that, that is interesting that, um, once again, so Freya, Freya, Freya um, in Norse mythology, she is a goddess associated with love, sex, beauty, fertility, gold, war, and death. And um, she rules over her he- heavenly afterlife field called Folkvanger. 
and there receives half of those that die in battle, where the other half go to the god Odin's hall, Valhalla. And so, you know, basically, like I was saying, like, uh, but here in America, we have the goddess Columbia, you know, Persephone, Minerva, um, from the Greek. They're all, it's all basically the same thing. Esther, Ishtar, Isis, and somehow Athena and, um, you know, the Statue of Liberty. Uh, what you have is all of, all of those things in modern uh, America are connected to the an imagery associated with fr- freedom. Wonder Woman. Right. And yet this word derives from uh, the same word where this this goddess's name comes from. It's very similar in nature. Um, like I said, love shared by a friend, but also comes from frere, um, which in France, it's interesting that uh, um, I have a book here. It's called Secret Societies of America's Elite by Stephen Sora. And here's what he has to say. He said the term Freemason entered the English language at the same century that the Knights Templar as an order was officially dissolved. The term was another corruption of the French language. The Templar Knights originally referred to each other as brother or frere in the, in the French. What was frere maçon in France became Freemason in English. When the Templars traveled, they erected quarters, and these became lodges, so named after French loges. The guard posted at the door of the lodge during the meeting was a tiler, in English derived from tailor, meaning one who cuts. Okay? So free is associated with the word brother in French as well as with this idea of sharing love with a friend. Now, that's not really how we define it today. And then if you were to go into, you know, like, I think the, I I should have looked this up, but if I'm remembering correctly, like the word in French or Latin is for free is not, they they wouldn't use the word frere, they'd use like gratuit or, you know, like kind of like gratitude. Yeah. Like the word gratuity is like a, yeah. Yeah, so 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 um, so it's interesting in a, in a country where we're kind of idealized as the pinnacle of freedom. It was created by Freemasons, and then the word that chose to be the you know the biggest, most advertised word of all when it comes to what America stands for is free, and free being from Freemason, meaning directly coming from Frere Mason in French. You see, mm-hmm. which also comes from a word stemming from a goddess in Nordic that was affiliated is affiliated with Isis, which is revered by the Freemasons, which in in monuments and statues all over this free land. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, just some stuff I, I was thinking about there. Now, let's get into the concept of freedom and how that actually works. Um, So I was kind of looking at some sort of a a kind of a generalized thing of what people today, like, I I literally typed into um, 
I typed into a search engine. I just typed in, what does freedom mean to you? Right. Okay. And I found, I found this blog. But before I do that, I, I want to make sure everybody realizes the elasticity of the word freedom and how it actually works. Okay. And so one quote I like to bring up from time to time is George Orwell's Politics in the English Language. And if you take the word fascism and the word democracy that he's using here and you just put the word freedom in instead of those words, it'll pretty much mean the same thing here. So he says, the word fascism has now no meaning except insofar as it signifies something not desirable. In the case of a word like democracy, not only is there no agreed definition, but the attempt to make one is resisted from all sides. It is almost universally felt that when we call a country democratic, we are praising it. Consequently, the defenders of every kind of regime claim that it is a democracy and fear that they might have to stop using the word if it were tied down to any one meaning. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to get a gist of what people kind of generally think about freedom in this day and age. And so I just picked this random blog. It's uh, called Writing Through Life by Amber Lee Starfire. That's the Writing Through Life blog. I don't even know what this is. Never been on it. I just um, I looked at a couple of different things, and this kind of encapsulated the general idea. It says, in the U.S., we are the land of the free. The lyrics of our songs extol the vir virtues and necessity of freedom. Let freedom ring. Sing your freedom because there's nothing in the world like freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom to say, freedom to think. This is my lucky day. We assume the rights of freedom and debate its boundaries in politics. Yet how often do we take time to reflect on what freedom means to us personally? Freedom is not a concept carved from stone. It is malleable and personal, always shifting, shaped depending on where you find yourself standing and the angle of the slanting light. My personal definition of freedom is the ability to act based on my convictions without external restriction or retribution. It is the ability to represent myself as I see myself to be, not having to hide or disguise who I am in order to pursue happiness, fulfillment, and growth. It is the power of free self-expression, personal freedom, it's one of my top three values. Of course, there are boundaries to freedom. My actions should not hurt others or restrict their personal freedoms. And so this is the dance of, of conscience. Will what I want conflict with what others want or need? If so, how can I have the personal autonomy I need while respecting the freedom of those around me? Believe there is always a path for mutual free expression when we respect one another. Today, as we prepare to celebrate our country's independence, I offer the following quote as food for thought and as writing prompts. I am free no matter what rules surround me. If I find them tolerable, I tolerate them. If I find them too obnoxious, I break them. I am free because I know that I alone am morally responsible for everything. I do. Robert Heinlein. We must be free, not because we claim freedom, but because we practice it. William Faulkner. If we don't believe in freedom of expression for people we despise, we don't believe in it at all. Noam Chomsky. Man is condemned to be free because once thrown into the world, he is responsible for everything he does. It is up to you to give life a meaning. Jean-Paul Sartre. The secret of happiness is freedom. The secret of freedom is courage. 
Kerry Jones. So, um, a lot of things having to do with uh, freedom tend to revolve around uh, the idea of kind of personal freedom. It's kind of a postmodernist uh, term, I'd say. I, it, it always was a po- kind of a postmodernist thing, um, it seems like. And the way that Orwell kind of uh, talks about uh, fascism and democracy, you can just put freedom into there and pretty much applies. Um, now, let's talk about the way we actually cognate an idea. And this is from a book, Cognitive Awareness, in the uh, LPM by Warren Hagar. And he's using the word depressed, but I'm going to insert the word free. He's giving an example. And uh, this is going to be imperative to what we're talking about here when we're trying to actually, uh, because one of the things I'm going to get into here is the collective and the individual as well. It is essential to my claim that feel is both a sensory and a perceptual verb, that I outline these semantical clarifications, which will help to eliminate some of the syntactical confusion that has encumbered the philosophy of sense impressions and sense expressions and obscured all previous presentations of cognitive knowledge of objects and adjunct with a knower. And what he he's saying, knower, K-N-O-W-E-R, that means a person who is self-aware of their self-awareness. Okay. These semantical differences are partly clarified in French because whereas in English the verb feel has at least three distinct meanings, the French language has three distinct verbs, one for each of these meanings. Thus, to express the three distinct meanings of the verb feel, experience, touch, and grope for. The French language uses respectively three corresponding verbs, center, toucher, and taloner, verse. My French is bad, pardon me. Pardon my French. Uh, once the distinct once the distinction is clear, once the syntactical rules pertaining to the predictions of the sensory verb feel and the perception verb feel are adhered to, many puzzles concerning perception evaporate. Let let us consider a little further the sensory verb feel in such a sentence as I feel free where there is a relation between me and some other entity. The intentionality of feel in such assertion is to express an awareness of how I feel. The adjective free does, however, have a bifunctional use. It refers to me as an object and to how I as a subject feel about myself as an object. The idea free is still distinct from but adjunct with the mind the word free is grammatically a predicate adjective modifying the grammatical subject i it is intuitively self-evident that the verb feel in the context i feel free is being used to express a certain cognitive affective state of awareness Okay. Does 
Did that make sense, Chris? Sort of in a abstract way. Yes. What? So the point I was making was I was on a talk with uh, Aberrato from um, Tim from Fakeologist, and there was an, another person on the call, and Tim had asked them in their particular country if if they were free, and the person um, responded by saying, um, "I feel free." So I pointed this out. And it was just an observation. It wasn't critiquing the person for saying this. I was just saying, okay, well, that's interesting that you chose that particular word. I I feel free as opposed to, well, yes, I am free here. And so I think for the most part, especially with what that person wrote in that blog that I just read from, a lot of this is kind of based around – the idea of what's going on in your mind on whether you feel free or not. And we've talked about this before, how, um, how people can be manipulated. You know, it's kind of like that Howard Beale, um, thing that he says in network where he's like, you know, just leave me alone. Just leave me with my microwave, my steel belted radials. You remember? Yeah. And that's kind of people's idea of freedom is, well, as long as I have these things, I'm okay. And it's just interesting because, you know, libertarians or anarchists or whatever, um, and we're going to talk about individuality versus collectivism here in a minute. It's it's always the, these two kind of allegedly opposite ends of the spectrum. By the way, I just want to mention that Chris and I are just kind of looking at this objectively. I'm not going to take a side on anything on this um so you don't believe in freedom and, john is what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> well, well it's kind of hard to believe in something that you can't define yeah. so um it's it's an interesting thing especially when you've got anarchists who want to live in collectives and collectivists who believe that the point of the state is to wither away all authority and get back to a place where there is no authority. Mm. Right? Right. So, um, uh, so <clears throat> let's get into a little bit about uh, the individual. And what freedom means in that sense. Now, the first thing I'm going to read from here is an essay, an essay from Helmut Schock, and it's and it's from a book called Envy: A Theory of Social Behavior. And this this section is called the sin of privacy. He said privacy is not recognized by different cultures and very different privacy is recognized by different cultures in very differing degrees yet we must not imagine that there is a straight path leading from a primitive first stage without privacy to a high civilization in which such privacy is defined 
Significantly, if a man really makes use of his right to be alone, the annoyance, envy, and mistrust of his fellow citizens will be aroused, even in cultures where a private life is a is a permissible and long-established institution. Anyone who cuts himself off, who draws his curtains and spends any length of time outside the range of observation is always seen as a potential heretic, a snob, a conspirator. It is hardly surprising, therefore, that the Puritans of New England felt a profound mistrust of those who valued their privacy. Besides this, there must also have been prejudice, wholly undemocratic and without religious connotations against the man with a private existence, especially on the western frontier, where if someone put up a fence or a hedge around his house, the consequences could be serious. To the same degree that Anglo-Saxon culture respects and values privacy, the egalitarianism of the American polity has given rise to resentment against it. Anyone who lives long enough amongst Americans today must notice how great, how greatly many of them still fear to indulge in what their fellow man might consider to be undue privacy. Insofar as possible, they try to show that they have nothing to hide. A drive after dark through a middle-class suburb will reveal will reveal countless families behind the uncurtained windows of living room or dining room as in a goldfish bowl. With few exceptions, modern Americans still fight shy of surrounding their houses with fences or hedges, at least of the kind that might give complete concealment. In some townships, these are even expressly forbidden. There is in America one profession above all in which, for egalitarian reasons, fear of seeming to take advantage of a pri- of a privacy in, in itself natural and necessary is particular in evidence. It is the profession which today is most intent on egalitarianism, that of a college or university professor. And then he goes into that. Um, I um, skip down. It says, a, ca- a cautious probing of the motives of this privacy phobia reveals its deep-rooted concern not to be unequal, not to be regarded as proud, secretive or unsociable, or even as exceptionally productive a concern. In short, not to arouse envy in someone else who himself lacks the self-discipline to work and welcomes any distraction. The delicate social psychology of privacy, including the problem of closed doors in American culture, has been examined very recently by Barry Schwartz and also by Edward T. Hall. The observation of American everyday existence throws light on many other motivational complexes in the American democracy and society. It must now further be considered, however, within a different framework, that of comparative culture and also of philosophy. So – so he's uh so it's interesting he's talking about privacy considering today we have we're kind of obligated through social pressure to have a facebook account to have a um you know the new the new common area where everybody congregates is not at the town square it's at the chat room, right? Mm-hmm. But in the chat room, you reveal more than you would ever reveal in the town square or just driving through a suburb. And you and I have talked about this before, but especially with suburbs, how they started devi- they started um, building houses to kind of have like privacy in in the 
in the back and nothing in the front so you couldn't see in as so as to kind of cut off your neighbors but at the same time there was kind of like this facade of wanting to appear as if you were kind of you know not being that way right uh uh-huh and and a lot of this, interestingly enough, as we talked about before, comes along with this with the Cold War scare and the scare that you might be living next to a communist. So it's like you wanted to be private and you wanted to hide, you know, um, kind of isolate yourself from your neighbors, but you didn't want to appear too private because you didn't want anybody thinking you're a commie. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so. Um, the other thing that created a lot of isolation, as we talked about, is especially in this neck of the woods, was that um, there were also a lot of people living with a lot of secrets because a lot of people were employed with um, top secret clearances. And that kind of aided in them uh, kind of isolating themselves from people except for people that they worked with. Now, William H. White talks about this in The Organization Man. He says, It is understandable that American literature has been so long fascinated with the small town revisited or lost. Those who have gone away think of what they left behind, and they are curiously ambiguous in their feeling of estrangement. In the case of the organization Transients, they feel they sacrificed much, and they often wonder if the gain has been worth it. Most of them came from reasonably prosperous homes. And when they look back, they remember the support of the kinfolk and friends about the reassuring solidity of grandfather's massard roof house and the feeling that they were part of the group that counted. The family name, as they so often say in retrospect, meant something. No longer local prestige, uh, they well know, is not for export and what is one's town's upper upper would be another's middle class now this kind of corresponds with what you were talking about with vance packard and nation of strangers another thing that was kind of taking place this time was with all these people moving into these new neighborhoods and they're all from everywhere else nobody knows each other so nobody has a lot of trust right so people tend to keep to themselves um Instead, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps the greatest tyranny, however, applies not to the deviate, but to the accepted. The group is a jealous master. It encourages participation, indeed demands it, but it demands one kind of participation, its own kind, and the better integrated with a member becomes the less free he is to express himself in other ways. In the planners' meetings I spoke of earlier, and he's talking about um, like planners' meetings, like a you know, like going to a civic center and planning community events and things like this. Right. People who wanted to plan for more participation assumed there is a unity to participation that is a layout that will. Assimilate neighborly social participation is the layout that will stimulate civic and cultural participation. They saw no no antithesis. 
Their primary goal was to develop citizenship rather than social activity. But they saw both kinds of participation as indivisible parts of a satisfying whole. When I first went to Park Forest Suburb, I thought so too. The courts and blocks that were the most notable for the amount of friendliness and social activity I presumed would be the ones that contributed to the greatest number of civic leaders. And as I checked, I plotted the location of all the leaders in the principal community organizations. To my surprise, the two did not correlate. If anything, there was a reverse relationship. By and large, the people who were active in the overall community did not tend to come from the courts that were especially happy. The cause and effect relationship is not too difficult to determine. For some people, of course, it does not make much difference whether the neighbor, neighborly gang is a happy one or not. They would be leaders in any event. But such people are a minority. The majority are more influenced by the good opinions of the group, and the cohesiveness of it has a considerable considerable bearing on whether they will become active in a community in community-wide problems where the group has never gelled enough to stimulate a sense of obligation the person with any predilection for civic activity feels no constraints the others would not be annoyed if he went in for outside activity they don't care enough if the group is strong however the same kind of person is less likely to express such yearnings it would be divisive there are only so many enthusiasms a person can sustain, only so many hours in the day, and the amount of leisure one expends outside the group must be deducted from that spent inside. It is not merely that the group will resent the absenteeism. Again, on the part of the individual himself, there is a moral obligation or at least the feeling that, the, that there should be. I recall how a young housewife put it to me. She had been toying with the idea of getting involved in a little theater, for she felt she and her husband were culturally very lacking, but she decided against it. She said, if we do, it'll mean we'll have to spend more of our free evenings away from the gang. I'd hate to be the first to break things up. We've really worked things out well here. The two play, the two play areas for the kids. My, how we'll all be... We'll all be my how we all pitched in on that. I know how we spend too much time just talking and playing bridge and all. Frankly, Chuck and I are the only ones around here who read much more than Reader's Digest. But have we the right to feel superior? I mean, should we break things up just because we're different in that way? Here's a question. Is this simple conformity? I'm not for the moment trying to argue that yielding to the group is something to be admired, but I do think that there is more of a moral problem here than is generally conceded in most discussions of American conformity. And uh, there's more, but I'll just stop there. Um, I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. Now... Now this all this all has a thread, by the way. It might seem to deviate a little, but it, but it's not going. It, it 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 all has a purpose here. Now, correlating with the idea of the organization man, um, I found something in the memoirs, dreams, and reflections of Carl Jung. Okay. Carl 
Carl Jung says, there is no better means of intensifying the treasured feeling of individuality than the possession of a secret which the individual is pledged to guard. The very beginnings of societal structures reveal the craving for secret organizations. When no valid secrets really exist, mysteries are invented or to which privileged initiates are admitted. Such was the case with the Rosicrucians and many other societies. Among these pseudo-secrets, there are ironically real secrets of which the initiates are entirely unaware, as for societies which borrowed their secret primarily from the alchemical tradition. The need for ostentatious secrecy is of vital importance on the primitive level, for the shared secret serves as a cement in binding the tribe together. Secrets on the tribal level constitute a helpful compensation for the lack of cohesion in the individual personality, which is constantly relapsing into the original unconscious identity with other members of the group. Attainment of the human goal, an individual who is conscious of his own peculiar nature, thus becomes a long, almost hopeless process of education. For even the individuals whose initiation into certain secrets has marked them out in some way are fundamentally obeying the laws of group identity through, in their case, the group is a socially differentiated one. The secret society is an intermediary stage on the way to individualization. The individual is still relying on a collective organization to affect his differentiation for him. That is, he has not yet recognized that it is really the individual's task to differentiate himself from all the other and stand on his own feet. All collective identities, such as membership in organizations, support of isms, and so on, interfere with the fulfillment of this task. Such collective identities are crutches for the lame, shields for the timid, beds for the lazy, nurseries for the irresponsible, but they are equally shelters for the poor, the weak, and the home port for the shipwrecked, the bosom of the family for orphans, a land of promise for the disillusioned, vagrants, and weary pilgrims, a herd and a safe fold for lost sheep, and a mother providing nourishment and growth. It would therefore be wrong to regard this as inter- an intermediary stage as a trap. On the contrary, for a long time to come, it will represent the only possible form of existence for the individual, who nowadays seems more than ever threatened by anonymity. Collective organization is still so essential today that many consider it with some justification to be the final goal, whereas to call for further steps along the road to autonomy appears like arrogance or hubris, fantasticality, or simply folly. Yeah, another another good book is that Undiscovered Self, uh, Carl Jung. It goes in into that kind of theme. Absolutely. Extensively. Yes. Well, it just made me realize something. So you have, or we have, collect as a collective in, in I guess modern civilization. I I, I was going to say America, but that's you know that's not true only here. So you have this um, uh, mobile society, and you have people. Communities are sort of fractured, and the, you know the atomization of society, people being sort of isolated. But at the same time, you have cohesion among uh, 
these secret societies. And I think by that situation, th those circumstances, this, the secret societies have a great, uh, a, a, a lot more influence than they ordinarily would in that they, they have a, um, a, a population that will be sort of prepared for whatever kind of, um, steering or, or, uh, influenced by any of these kind of secretive organizations, I think. And I think that's, uh, that, that's by design as well. I agree. And I, one of the points that, you know, we're going to make here in this discussion is, you know, kind of going, you know, I'll get into it in a minute here is that going back and we've talked about this before is, is uh, we were just kind of talking about it last week after we talked to Scott Onstott is that if, if it's secret and it's running the show and you're not being let in on any of the secrets or even, the secret of its existence is kind of unknown. Like, let's say you're, you know, you're getting taught in school and they're teaching the, teaching you about 1776 and it's all just kind of, it, it all just kind of happened, you know, just these guys got mad because the King was a tyrant and he put on it, he put a tax on them. So they got mad and they just revolted. Right. Right. That's what they say. And that's just, that's just kind of how it, it, it all took place. It was just, kind of grassroots organic type thing. But then, you know, even in the past 15 years, you know, um, the secret societies reveal themselves through, you know, history channel and you can go into Barnes and Noble and there's a whole secret society section in the bookstore. Um, I think it's officially admitted now that the Boston tea party was a Masonic, uh, staged operation. Right. Most of the stuff is, I mean, I, I used to have a U.S. News and World Report magazine on secret societies. And they basically said all that same stuff. Actually, I'm going to read some stuff from, from a book here in a minute that's going to talk about that. But Yeah, I have, just that, same, I have that same, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's probably the same one. From, is, is it Newsweek, you said? Uh, no, it was U.S. News and World Report. U.S. News and World Report. Yeah, I I don't have it anymore, but I used to have it. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I used to have societies. it. Yeah, it was probably like from 12 years ago or 13 years ago or something like that. Um, but Kent, but let me just continue down this um, down this thread here with the. Uh, with the idea of the individual kind of versus the versus the collective and the idea of what freedom is here and kind of venture into another areas is how, how are we conditioned early on to kind of accept the idea of what freedom and individuality or collectivism is, Right sometimes we don't think about that is that there's an early conditioning that kind of tells you subconsciously what you're going to think about as far as freedom. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is from Eric Fromm's uh, Escape from Freedom, which which we've read from before. But he says, it is important to consider how our culture fosters this tendency to, to conform even – Though there is space for only a few outstanding examples, the suppression of spontaneous feelings and thereby the development of genuine individuality starts very early. As a matter of fact, with this earliest training – here, let me read this over again – He says, it is important to consider how our culture fosters this tendency to conform, even though there is space for only a few outstanding examples. The suppression of spontaneous feelings and thereby of the development of genuine individuality starts very early, as a matter of fact, with the earliest training of a child. This is not to say that training must inevitably lead to suppression of spontaneity if the real aim of education is to further the inner independence and individuality of the child, its growth and integrity, the restrictions which such a kind of education may have to impose upon the growing child are only transitory measures that really support the process of growth and expansion. In our culture, however, education too often results in the elimination of spontaneity and in the substitution of original psychic acts by superimposed feelings, thoughts, and wishes. By original, I do not mean, let me repeat, that an idea has not been thought before by someone else, but that it originates in the individual, that it is the result of his own activity, and that in this sense is his thought. To choose one illustration somewhat arbitrarily, one of the earliest suppressions of feelings concerning hostility and dislike, to start with most children have a certain measure of hostility and rebelliousness as a result of their conflicts with a surrounding world that tends to block their expansiveness and to which, as the weaker opponent, they usually have to yield. It is one of the essential aims of the educational process to eliminate this antagonistic reaction. The methods are different. They vary from threats and punishment, which frighten the child, to the subtler methods of bribery or explanations, which confuse the child and make him give up his hostility. The child starts with giving up the expression of his feeling and eventually gives up the very feeling itself. Together with that, he is taught to suppress the awareness of hostility and taught to suppress and taught to suppress the awareness of hostility and insincerity in others. Sometimes this is not entirely easy since children have a capacity for noticing such negative qualities in others without being so easily deceived by words as adults usually are. They still dislike somebody for no good reason, except the very good one that they feel hostility or insincerity radiating from that person. The reaction is soon discouraged. It does not take long for the child to reach the maturity of the average adult and lose the sense of discrimination between a decent person and a scoundrel, as long as the latter has not committed some flagrant act. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. So, so, so even your so even what, what someone like you or me, which we have no problem um, psychoanalyzing ourselves uh, from time to time, is 
I, I know that I'm screwed up. You know that you're screwed up and we were screwed up by growing up with within this current system that we live in. Oh, yeah. And those type of things are bred out of you at an early age. Um, so foundationally speaking, could you say that because of what Mr. Fromm just described there, which most definitely happens to probably the majority of people who go to public school. And I'd say probably 100% of people who went to public school or, you know, even went to school in general, uh, with varying degrees had, um, had no, um, We've had we've had no possibility of experiencing quote unquote freedom. Yeah, that. Uh, well, and then at the same time, too, we have this uh, idea or this a- abstract con- concept of what it means to be free, which, uh, a- as we're going into here doesn't really have any kind of definition that can, you know, be related to something objective. It's more of an abstraction. It's more of a, just like that article you read out of that blog that, uh, well, you know what else with that blog? I'm I'm glad you brought that up because it's just reminding me to think that I wanted to say this to go along with that quote right there. I almost forgot. So you notice in that blog that that person listed a whole bunch of quotes, like from Faulkner and Chomsky and uh, somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this person has already given away their idea of freedom because they needed somebody else to quote what freedom was for them. Right. So instead of their own words, they use quotes to define it. That's, yes, uh, that's a good point. So, so yeah, it is. It it it's not something. It it's it's more of yeah. It's more of this um, a, a reaction to something other than getting getting an understanding or getting something that's uh, concrete. It's just a uh, it, it well, like I, I'll just repeat it again. It's act, a, abstraction where uh, it's not; it's ill-defined, and then you you have to defer to some kind of uh, external authority, and that seems like kind of people's inclination to do that. It's like, free, well, what is freedom to define it? And they'll probably refer to a quote or refer to some external uh, source of information for what that actually means or what that is or invoke some kind of, um, like, like your, uh, associate you referred to earlier where it was, um, I feel free. I, I feel like I'm free. So it, it is, um, yeah, like the, the Eric Fromm was saying is something that is, um, is, is systematically driven out of you at a young age your um which is your ability to react um 
correctly to what you what your senses or what your in, intuition is telling you and then you're um relegated to this uh so-called like correct behavior or civilized behavior i guess that's a good word term for it too where you don't you don't longer go off your um instinctual drive you go off of what the collective around you is informing you and that's a process and then some some individuals deal with that some can't adapt to it at all some can uh adapt to it to an extent and some some have uh an ability to adapt to it fairly fully but um that's yeah that's a, i think that's an excellent point there about how schooling takes and re redefines that for you redefines those concepts what it means uh and then that's also shaping your identity your 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 view of yourself as well Carl Carl Young goes into that uh absolutely now I'm gonna I'm gonna quote from some stuff that people don't know you don't normally hear on uh, you know when people are talking about freedom or things like this, I'm kind of go, going into the nature, the psychological nature of it, and what the word means and whatnot, or um, what the ideas of it are. Uh, the Diary of Anais Nin from 1934 to 39. She she was a writer. She was um, uh, she wrote a book pretty popular at the time called Novel of of the Future. She was one of the lovers of Henry Miller, who you know wrote *Tropic of Cancer*. These are kind of free-thinking, free-living um, people who, uh, you know, Henry Miller's books were banned in the U.S. because they were uh, uh, considered obscene. Anais Nin wrote erotic books. In fact, I think one of her books is called *Erotica*. And this is during, you know the 20s and things like you know after world war one that these people are living their lives out in france and whatnot and um uh, but it's just interesting what she says here and i was actually thinking about this part of the quote here she says what makes people despair is that they try to find a universal meaning to the whole of life and then end up by saying it is absurd illogical empty of meaning There is not one big cosmic meaning for all. There is only the meaning which each give to our life, an individual meaning, an individual plot, an individual novel, a book for each person. To seek total unity is wrong. To give as much meaning to one's life as possible is right for me, for that is a contribution to the whole. For example, I am not committed to any of the political movements, which I find to be full of fanaticism and injustice. But in the face of each human being, I act democratically and humanely. I give each human being his due. I disregard class and possession. I pay my respects to their spirit, their human qualities, or their talents. I fulfill their needs as much as I am able to. If all of us acted in unison as I act individually... There would be no wars and no poverty. I have have made myself personally responsible for the fate of every human being who has come my way. 
Now, like I said, she was kind of a free thinker for her time. Um, uh, more liberal than uh, someone like myself, in, at least in my current state of being here. Um, and this causes problems and conflict for her. And uh, she says right after this on the next page, I miss the electric rhythm of New York. It was like riding a fiery racehorse. I was drunk on liberty, on space, and dynamism. Where are the dazzling lights, the roar of airplanes, foghorns, fast cars, wild pace? I am restless. Adventure is pulling me out. I was happier when I was selfless. But now that this growth and expansion has started, I am unable to stop it. I feel so strangely released. I feel no boundaries within myself, no walls, no fears. Nothing holds me back from adventure. I feel mobile, fluid. And then she describes the complete and total discontent of her liberty and how she is not able to uh, confine herself to a life of contentment. She says, even today when I'm most deeply installed inside of life, I cannot hear music and gaiety from a neighbor's house without sadness, without feeling outside. To be inside or outside was my nightmare. I feel born on the rim of an eternally elusive world. When I was poor, when I was in an awkward age, when I was combing my long hair before the mirror of the pantry in the brownstone in New York, I can understand why the music that came from the house in the front of us filled me with yearning, jealousy, envy, despair. It seemed to me inaccessible. It seemed to me to come from a forbidden and impossible world. I thought it was because I was poor, because our life was not beautiful, because I was not beautiful. I thought it was because as I stood there in my nightgown, with my hairbrush in hand, brushing my long hair, I was aware of the timidity of this body which only danced in the dark, of the fragility of this hair which seldom shined and, and seemed to only shine in the dark, the paleness of this face which seemed to shine better in solitude. I shone in solitude, that was the mystery. And I could not reconcile this black self shining to the brilliancy of the day, the day brilliancy of the neighbor's room on a gay evening, and the music. It was not poverty. It was not the awkward age. The day came when I shone in daylight, when I wore the dress and danced in daylight, and the glow and the smile, the familiarity and the triumphs. The gaiety was mine and for me, but the moment of insidiousness, of participation, of belonging, was swift and left me outside as much as when I stood as the girl watching from the neighbor's window. There was always this being outside at some moment or other alone. I could not remain inside. I did not live inside. The glow, the familiarity inside of music with people and gaiety was there, but so was the moon glow of the solitude, the pale-faced watcher. At first, I was altogether the lonely girl watching and feeling unfamiliar. Afterwards, I was both. Now I am often inside, and I dread the moment when I will see the pale face at the window watching from another world. I do not want to be robbed of the present. Was not this yearning girl finally buried in the woman fulfilled? 
Why should the moment of music ever stop? Why must it come? The moment when I am thrust out on the periphery again, separated, and I hear the neighbor's music, I hear the festivities, I hear the dancing, of which I am not a part of, and I am sad, still yearning as someone doomed to feel this edge, this rim, this distance. Everything will not happen in my own home. There is always music coming from elsewhere, always a yearning, always something imagined to be lovelier and warmer. Always a color that is inaccessible, a room that makes me feel poor and ragged, a music that makes me dance in the dark. Always a music that makes me glow in the dark, a different glow than the color of the neighbor's gaiety. This violent desire to be inside of all warm, live, breathing pleasures, to sleep in them, to be always a part of them, never to be alone, to break the apartness forever, a mad desire. Now, this was an important thing because... This type of person didn't exist in a previous generation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just this this lady, um, you know, she she's a, a repute here at this time period, but she's you know writing these diary entries, and um, she's got this internal conflict when it comes to individualism and to belonging. To society, so she's got this. Um, on this one hand, this kind of the the thing of it was is individualism is as old as eighteen thirty five, and we're, we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. But basically, the words invented around eighteen thirty five, the idea for America being individualistic, comes around that time. But as time went on further and further and further, that term itself, along with freedom, got reinvented. And so now we have a conflict, a person who um, wants kind of like the comforts at home, but she also wants to be out on the street and, you know, seeing what the wonders of life uh, at at the time period. Probably she's writing about the jazz age here. Uh, is talking about and um, a- another interesting thing that predates that predates um, this you know comes from a quote on Beethoven. This is about Beethoven. It said um, his growing consciousness that what is called the human life was withheld from him. The emotional and passionate man was condemned to a fundamental isolation personal relations that should give him a sense of completeness and satisfy his hunger were impossible. Separation from the world was the entry into a different and more exalted vision. That was talking about Beethoven writing his music. And so another thing we have at this time period kind of coming in, is the idea that your leisure and your kind of your talents uh, kind of supersede uh, human contact or just you know being being with people your in, your interests supersede uh, family mm-hmm. yeah and like i'm saying like like i'm saying today there's you know we're we're so far removed from any of this so 
uh, as we usually do in our talks and remaining objective as we're going through this, but we got to see where this type of stuff comes from, right? Okay. You have any comment on that at all? So you what what you're saying this is uh what year again was it 1835 is what you said uh, 1835 is when the word individualism is basically kind of invented. Okay. Yeah. Have you? Um, we brought this up before multiple times with the documentary series uh, Sin Cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's a good one to take a look at because that kind of goes into what was going on during the tw- 1920s. Yeah, the well, the un, like like I was saying, Anais Nin and um, and the people that she ran with, she's kind of from the 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 post World War One period, where it's um, uh, the right, you know, the American the Americans living in France after World War One, who kind of started the party lifestyle, and then. They're kind of idolized in in America, you know, uh, through the 1920s and whatnot, and they kind of lived a free and decadent lifestyle. Um, and, and what I'm saying, what the point I was making by reading her, like the first quote, you know, she's talking about how she treats people and she she's very democratic and she's not political. Um, she tries to pe- treat people nicely. Um, she has this. Uh, kind of um, liberal approach to individual people, and but at the same time, she realizes that there is no universal idea for what is "quote unquote" um, she what, the the great part of her quote, which is kind of where we're at today, currently, and have been for quite a while with postmodernism. She says when people try to make a universal idea for everything uh, people tend to see that it doesn't work so they turn to the absurd mm. yeah. right which which was good but then she doesn't see the folly within her own kind of the way she lives leads her life because she's filled with this conflict because she's so free and open to kind of anything but yet she has this innate desire to, you know, kind of want to stay in one place, but at the same time, she wants to go out and party, you know, to basically kind of put it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people during this time period and then extending down into our current age, like you kind of have that. A lot of people are conflicted, especially when they get to be a certain age. They're kind of conflicted, you know, uh, myself included, maybe even yourself, you get to be a certain age and you're like, you're like, well, is, is, um, you know, making the, making the scene and making the nightlife kind of what it's all about is, are we supposed to be just this kind of receptacle of experience or is there something deeper to it? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at, at a certain point, people start to think, well, maybe my experiences aren't really 
like like you know what constitutes a um, a meaningful experience, right? Right. So, so you have all these questions that arise out of this this idea of individualism and freedom. It comes with these unanswered questions, especially when you have something proposed to you that's undefinable. First of all, I want to point this out before it gets any deeper into this, is you have a word that is used politically and a word that is used like, you know, it's in your it's in your founding documents. It's in your it's, you know, kind of embedded into everybody's mind that, you know, oh, well, there must be, you know, documents somewhere, some somehow that is that you know protects my freedoms right right so this word freedom in of itself is protected in your political documents in your government documents in your bill of rights and all that your freedoms you but but yet this word freedom doesn't this word freedom itself ceases to be defined but then you have the very ambiguous world of well the cool thing about freedom is it is what it is whatever you want it to be but then yet at the same time there's other freedoms that you don't have like you know there's certain words you're not supposed to say right right and this is nothing new i mean political correctness is Political correctness is nothing new. It's, I mean, it's been going on for a long time. There's always been something somewhere at some time that you're not allowed to do. Right. So in the midst of all of your freedoms, there's always something that you can't do. And, and um, there's always going to be a, down through history, a tightening of those ideas but but the interesting part about this as i'm going to read from this ralph waldo emerson quote and then this this dostoevsky quote is that the funny thing about it is the liberalism is actually you the liberalism and the science is actually used to get rid of the freedom that you had before you had this idea that this civilized you know, I this civilization was making you freer. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out it makes you less free, and liberalism makes you less free. Yeah, totally. And so, like, so like that Anais Nin quote, she she may be kind of free to you know do whatever she wants sexually or or you know go out and you know decadent wise, but even. But even that lifestyle, she's not free in her mind totally because she's sitting here writing her diary about this conflict that she's having. It it, it hasn't totally freed her, even even coming from her perspective. She's not freed in her mind. She has conflict as as a result of this liberalism. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So even so, even psychologically, she's not free. Um. Yeah, I was trying to remember like that because I, I remember seeing uh, this this particular documentary, the legendary Sin Cities, Paris, Berlin, and Shanghai. When it was going into Paris, uh, 
I think it was, so you, you know, we're talking about a period here from between World War One and Two. So that, so that uh, Paris, and, and I think uh, as many people already know, that's like the, you know, France was sort of like the uh, instrumental in bringing about the so-called Enlightenment. And uh, I'm trying to recall that particular group that uh, was uh, created in France, but it was... The Jacobins? Yeah, the Jacobins. And uh, there was that uh, sort of anti-religious movement as well. Uh, well, of course, a lot of things came out of France, but uh, along that lines. But I think that uh, Paris would probably be a representation of sort of that... Um, I guess the spearhead of so-called enlightenment thinking. So it wouldn't, so it wouldn't be a surprise to see this sort of mentality or this, you know, these modernist ideas getting, getting started there and migrating over into America, different, uh, and then, you know, well, first, you know, throughout Europe, and then to America. Right. And, you know, France is the, is the brother in arms of, of the USA in that regard. Um, even though it's obviously much older in history, um, it's, you know, we'll, we'll actually talk about it in a minute and we'll actually talk about the Jacobins in regards to good old George Washington here in a moment. But the um, let me read this quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Ralph Waldo Emerson was one of the transcendentalist writers, um, along with uh, Henry Thoreau and uh, Walt Walt Whitman. He's writing this in the later part of the eighteen hundreds. Uh, from his uh, essay, Self-Reliance, uh, he said, he said, whoso would, have been, uh, would be a man must be a nonconformist. He who would gather immortal palms must not be hindered by the name of goodness, but must, must explore if it be goodness. Nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of our own mind absolve you to yourself and you shall have the suffrage of the world. I remember an answer, which when quite young, I was prompted, I was prompted to make a valued advisor who was wont to importune me with the dear old doctrines of the church on my sitting. What have I to do with the sacredness of traditions if I live wholly from within, my friend suggested, but these impulses may be from below, not above. I replied, they do not seem to me as such, but if I am the devil's child, I will live then from the devil. No law can be sacred to me, but that of my nature. Okay. He says, um, Society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. Society is a joint stock company in which the members agree for the better securing of his bread to each shareholder to surrender the liberty and culture of the eater. 
The virtue in most request is conformity. Self-reliance is its aversion. It loves not realities and creators, but names and customs. Um, the last thing I'll say from here is he says uh, but now we are a mob man does not stand in awe of man nor does nor is the soul admonished to stay at home to out itself in communication with the internal ocean but it goes abroad to beg a cup of water of the urns of men we must go alone isolation must precede true society I like the silent church before the service begins better than any preaching. How far off, how cool, how chast the person looks, begirt each one with a precinct or sanctuary. So let us always sit. Why should we assume the faults of our friend or wife or father or child? Because they sit around our hearth or are said to have the same blood. All men have my blood and I have all men's. Not for that I will adopt their petulance or folly, even to the extent the extent of being ashamed of it. And lastly, he says, society never advances. It recedes as fast as one side as it gains on the other. Its progress is only apparent like the workers of a treadmill. It undergoes continual changes. It is, bar it is barbarous. It is civilized. It is Christianized. It is rich. It is scientific. But this change is not amelioration, for everything that is given, something is taken. Society acquires new arts and loses old instincts. What a contrast between the well-clad reading, writing, thinking American with a watch, a pencil, and a bill of exchange in his pocket, and the naked New Zealander whose property is a club, a spear, a mat, and an undivided twentieth of a shed to sleep under. But compare the health of the two men, and you shall see that his aboriginal strength the white man has lost. If the traveler tell us truly, strike the savage with a broad axe, and in a day or two the flesh shall unite and heal as if you struck the blow into his soft pitch, and the same blow shall send the white man to his grave. The civilized man has built a coach, but has lost the use of his feet. He is supported on crutches, but loses so much support of his muscle. He has got a fine Geneva watch, but he has lost the skill to tell the hour by the sun. A Greenwich nautical almanac he has, and so being sure of the information, when he wants it, the man in the street does not know a star in the sky. The solstice he does not observe, the equinox he knows as little. And the whole bright calendar of the year is without a dial in his mind. His notebooks impair his memory. His libraries overload his wit. The insurance office increase the number of accidents. And it may be a question whether machinery does not encumber, whether we have not lost by refinement some energy, by Christianity entrenched in establishments and forms some vigor of wild virtue. For every Stoic was a Stoic, but in Christendom... Where is the Christian? Society is a wave. The wave moves onward, but the watch of what it is composed does not. So another 
definition there of individualism, self-reliance, um, breaking away from society. Like I said, he's writing this in the 1800s, right? What book is this from again? That's an essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, I have it in an actual old binding book, um, probably from the early 1900s. It's called Emerson's Essays, but you can find it pretty easy. Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Self-Reliance. Yeah, Cult of Reason. That's what I was trying to think of. <clears throat> oh, the Cult of Reason. Yeah, coming yes, out of France, the cult, the late cult, 1700s. Yeah, Comte. Augustus Comte and the the ri- the rise of social sciences yeah and secular humanism and all of mm-hmm. which uh, which shapes a lot of uh, our culture in the United States today now now the the thing the thing that's going to come up in regards to that in a minute we're going to talk about mark we're going to read a passage uh, from Marx and Engels which i i have to say as much as people hate the commies and hate the socialists, it's very rare that you ever actually hear somebody quote from actual Marx and Engels, which, by the way, is very boring stuff. There's not much exciting stuff in any Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels writings. It's pretty boring. It's mostly just economic mumbo-jumbo. Um. But yeah, as much as people say, you know, talk about the commun the Communist Manifesto and all that, nobody ever quotes from it or actually reads from it. We will. Okay, but great. before before we get to that part, this is a uh, a quote from the Idiot by Fyodor Dostoevsky, which precedes the Russian Revolution. I think this is written in eighteen sixty nine, and. Mr. Dostoevsky tells it like it is right here um, regarding now, – now you have to understand before the Bolsheviks took power, they took power from the Russian czars, which were you know the kings and the, um, the royalty of Russia, which was related to the English royalty as well. Um, and there was a lot of problems you know, uh, during that time period, the bureaucracy, the feudal landscape that – that took over, um, and basically what happened was uh, people traded one bad situation for another, which we we usually normally just do that anyways. Mm-hmm. But people were upset with with uh, the way things were under the czars uh, allegedly, and. Um, they moved into this period. Now you got. Now you got to remember. Um, I think Marx and Engels starts writing that gets funded by uh, gets funded by the uh, the royalty and the Freemasons of the world to write the Communist Manifesto and come up with all their economic BS uh, to start these rev- these Freemasonic revolutions all over the world um, in the mid eighteen hundreds. Um, so by this time in, in 1869, 1870, the word socialist is, al- is already kind of bantied about, okay? And once again, we're dealing with the idea of freedom here, okay? Now, uh, 
Chris, would you associate the word liberal or liberty with freedom? Wouldn't you think most people associate those words kind of together? Freedom and liberty, yeah. Yeah. And, and and liberalism, like if you think of it in the classical sense, not not like the modern day, but like classical liberalism, that's something associated with freedom. I would think so. Yeah, which is interesting how that kind of works out. Or liberalism <laughs> in the if you if you talk about it today in in the context of modern politics, it 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 doesn't have it does it's not even indicating the same thing at all. Yes, right. So here's what he says. He says, I say nothing against liberalism. Liberalism is not a sin. It is an essential part of the whole, which without it would drop to pieces or perish. Liberalism has just as much right to exist as the most judicious conservatism. But I am attacking Russian liberalism. I repeat again, I attack it just for the reason that Russian, that Russian liberal is not a Russian liberal, but an un-Russian liberal. Show me a Russian liberal and I'll kiss him in front of you all. That's if that's if he cares to kiss you. Uh, I was maintaining just now, just before you came in, Prince, that liberals so far as have come from only two classes of society, from the old landowning class, that's now a thing of the past, and from the clerical families. And as those two classes have become regular castes, something quite apart from the nation and more and more so from generation to generation. So everything they have done and are doing is absolutely non-national. But I didn't speak of the Russian landowner in the sense of which you are taking it. It is the most respectable class, if only because I belong to it, especially now since it has ceased to be a caste. Do you mean to say that there has been nothing national in literature? I am not an authority on literature, but even Russian literature is, in my opinion, not Russian at all. Uh, as of all Russian writers, these are the only ones that have so far been able to say something of their own, something not borrowed. They have by this fact become national. Any Russian who says or writes or does anything of his own, something original, not borrowed, inevitably becomes national even if he can't speak Russian properly. That I regard as an axiom. But we are not talking of literature at first. We were talking of socialists at the beginning. Well, I maintain that we haven't one single Russian socialist. There are none, and there have never there never have been. For all our socialists are also landowners or divinity students. All our notorious and professed socialists, both here and abroad, are nothing more than liberals from the landed gentry of the serf-owning days. Why are you laughing? Show me their books. Show me their theories, their memoirs. And though I am no literary critic, I can write you the most convincing criticism in which I'll show you as clear as daylight that every page of their books and pamphlets and memoirs have been written by a Russian landowner of the old school. Their anger, their indignation, their wit are all typical of that class. And it was even in pre-times, their raptures, their tears are perhaps real, genuine tears, but they are landowners' tears, landowners or divinity students. You are laughing again. And you were laughing too? You don't agree with me? I just thought that was a funny quote because if you think about that time and, and the, the way that we see the current state of people who always fall for the right-left paradigm, mm-hmm. yeah, and they always, they always think that the liberal socialist thing is 
is associated with the downtrodden masses. And here's a guy in 1870 telling you exactly how it works. Yeah, it's the old dialectic. It's been around quite some time. And it's funny how if you take the words liberalism, if you want to talk about defining terms, and then you take the word progressivism, it, it's rel- it's, those are relativistic terms, right? It's like liberal at relative to what or progressive relative to what. So it's th- those things are never really defined either. Right. And the one thing that maintains constantly through this time period that we start to see this idea of individualism or social individualism. It's interesting, too, because um, I think we've talked about this in the past over multiple episodes of Afternoon Commute and with guests and things like this is kind of coming to the conclusion that there is no difference between conservatism and liberalism. At a certain point, they kind of meet. Well, yeah, that's what I was. That's uh, kind of goes along with the flip side of what I just said. Is like if you take mm-hmm. conservatism, it's like conservative conserving the existing order. Well, if it's it's going to be shifting according to the dialectic, that definition is always going to be changing, and it's what that's what we see all the time too. It's like oh, conservative means different things today than it did 40 years ago. Exactly. Exactly. And then if you take into account that now there's not a lot of people out there who who, who are going to know this or kind of look into this as deeply, but the idea of individualism, the idea of conservatism and liberalism kind of takes the modern shape, the, the shape that we kind of are still living through. Um, it was in the works in earlier time periods prior to the 1800s, but it actually starts taking its shape once you bring in the origin of the species. It plays a very vital role in the idea of, of individualistic freedom and capitalism and um, interestingly enough, on the opposite end of the spectrum – not only does it um, not only does it justify capitalism, but it also justifies socialism. They both seem to regard evolution theory as being the the um, uh, the the proof that each one side of the spectrum is the right is the right thing for humanity, and both sides profess ultimate freedom. And um, let me read here from – this is written in March of, of 1880, okay, by Marx and Engels. Okay, I'm reading from Friedrich Engels from Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific. And I've got an actual commie copy of this. This oh. is actually pr- printed in Russia by Progress Publishers. Oh, nice. Okay, this is a real deal. It's like from the like this is probably printed in the sixties, like sixties Russia. These were these are commie. This is commie paper right here. <laughs> it's a better quality, or is it? It's it's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Oh, it says here. Oh, it was printed in nineteen seventy three. Okay, so 
Almost, What's the name almost of the book one more time? Sorry. The, the name of the book is The Socialist Revolution by, Fred, by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. The chapter uh, – but here's what it says about the proletarian revolution. Solution of the contradictions. The proletariat seizes the public power and by means of, the, of this transforms the socialized means of production – Slipping from the hands of the bourgeoisie into the public property. By this act, the proletariat frees the means of production from the character of the capital they have thus far borne and gives their socialized character complete freedom to work itself out. Socialized production upon the predetermined plan becomes henceforth possible. The development of production makes the existence of different classes of society thenceforth an anachronism. In proportion as anarchy and social production vanishes, the political authority of the state dies out. Man at last, the master of his own form of social organization, becomes at the same time the lord over nature, his own master, free. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good summation of kind of what the ideologies, how they how they meld together. Yeah. Well, they also meld together with uh, nationalist socialism, which uh, it's interesting. It, it seems not many people want to bring this up, but mind comp, mind struggle, you know, as it, coming about a time when, you know, the, when uh, Darwinism uh, has gotten a lot of traction and there's a lot of uh, this, uh, discussion which would kind of fall under the category of social darwinism and then hitler comes out with the book my struggle which is interesting language and if you look at some of the i haven't read the entire book but i've read uh, segments of it and a lot of the language is right in line with uh origin of origin of species and survival of the fittest concepts and all of that so it's interesting that well, he even has it in the title. So struggle, you're thinking, uh, you know, struggling as in uh, survival of the fittest. Well, yeah, especially in the but, context of kind of that I know, era. But, but, but here, here's another thing you need to think about. My struggle, my, me, the individual. Mm-hmm. That too, yeah. So, so it's an individual struggle... Um, of course, I've read that, um, and like anything else, it's it's very it's very politically. Um, it's like you said, there's a lot of survival of the fittest type stuff in there too, um, and it's got a lot of correct things in there. He's pointing out a lot of stuff in German society at the time that was, you know, incorrect, and that he was allegedly going to correct. You know, like any like any politician. Um, so, but, but yeah, that's, that's definitely true. Uh, the interesting thing about that, um, that Marx and Engels quote is, is that, so, so it's through the power of the state that you are going to become free eventually. And eventually once the state takes hold of everything and then dishes it out to you, eventually somewhere down the line, that's all going to wither away and you're going to become free. And, you know, Jay Dyer's pointed this out 
before that and and uh you know i'm I'm giving him credit even though we've talked about it at the same time um but that's right in line with libertarianism at least the kind of libertarianism that's kind of peddled in the modern day kind of like the techno libertarianism You see, you see, because because Google are libertarian. We've talked about this before. You know, all the techno people, Amazon's libertarian, Google's libertarian. They're all libertarians. They want to get, you know, they want to get rid of government regulations and all that type of stuff. But those things themselves are government entities, but operating in the private sphere. Yeah, I, I remember hearing about their being a pretty large Ron Paul supporter contingency within the ranks of Google back yeah you know, yeah when yeah he, was he, he he went and talked there give give a speech at Google um, it was you know chumming it up with them and so yeah you have this once again I think one of the main points of our discussion here is that you're gonna see these points meet it's like it's like yes, it's libertarianism. Um, as long as it's private, even though the government subsidized it into existence, right? You see, I mean, how does that work? How's that? How's that? How does that even work? How's that? How do, how could you foundationally even call yourself libertarian? E- even if you're trying to. Like let's let's just say okay well you know you gotta exist you gotta you gotta exist in this world. Um, Ron Paul's gotta eat you know he's gotta try to exist with with what I mean Chris don't criticize him he's trying the best with what's been given to him. It's like okay well whatever it is it's not libertarian if you're going off of the idea of like what the average person thinks of libertarianism and freedom is all about. Yeah. Um. But like we said before, I think these these guys have another. They've got a more um, social Darwinian idea of what libertarianism is, and as we move, let, let's let's transition into this part of the talk here, because uh, we're gonna find. Um, we're gonna find exa- Let's let's start talking about this and. Um, I'll show you exactly what I'm talking about here. This is a quote from – oh, man. Are you kidding? Did I just really do that? Did I just really just close the book without the bookmark in it? Well, while you're finding that, I was going to comment on Google. It's, it's this oh, idea it that, okay, these dudes in a basement came up with this uh, whiz-bang algorithm that sort of just – commandeered the internet single-handedly it's really i have to laugh i mean so like i get now where i i read i get to reading stuff and it's just and it's and it's coming like this historical happening with a straight face and i can't stop i can't help but laugh i mean that the story behind it is so it's it's this typical rags to riches story and it's it doesn't really make sense insofar as how the real world works and and so when you get in so with that said when you get into a lot of these political movements and stuff too libertarianism and stuff they 
they have real no real foundation in anything <laughs> in objective reality. It, it's it's just sort of it, it's sort of this ideal romanticized ideal of what of what free markets represent or what even that means. But they but they're not even dwelling in reality when it comes down to it. It's like yes, like if you think Google. The, if you believe the official story about how Google came about, then you really, really have to, you know, look further into things because it's because that story makes no sense. And um, I'm not saying that pe there weren't some brilliant people that innovated all that stuff. That's where everything comes from. That's but it's it's like you have there's this there's this unseen organizing principle is what I'm saying that directs the energy the resources into developing something like google to the point where it becomes this dominant overwhelming force on the scene today like it is that doesn't come about through some purely grassroots uh endeavor it doesn't stuff just doesn't work that way it doesn't and um uh, to start in this area here, we're going to start with a quote from Philip Wiley from the book Generation of Vipers. And uh, what, this book was written in 1942. He says, an idea, purpose, motive, wish, dream, hope, fear, or hate existing in the head of an individual involves the principle of opposites only insofar as the contents of that person's head are concerned. But as soon as any such quantum is set in motion, it also sets the laws of the opposites in motion, and they will impinge upon every person who is touched in any way by the act of the individual. That is equally true of groups, mobs, nations. So long, for instance, as a nation is preoccupied at home with its concept of, say, liberty, it will produce only domestic progress or regression in the categories of freedom of all sorts and slavery of all sorts, of responsibility among free men acting on their own choices or of irresponsibility of slave populations who have delegated their liberties to their masters. When, however, any such nation considers another to seize it or befriend it, the domestic preoccupation becomes action at home and effect abroad. A boss is a master to the degree that he can control the, p the persons he bosses. A congressman is a master with delegated power to, limits the liber to limit the liberties of the republic. So too a demagogue is a master because his adherents sign away to his demagogic promises a certain large or small part of their independence, freedom of personal choice, and the liberty of movement. All political freedom necessarily involves individual responsibility or the alternative of delegated responsibility – which, while it deprives the individual of certain amounts of his freedom, returns certain emancipations from personal and social responsibility. The workings of this relationship of opposites are becoming alarmingly apparent to many people. He um, says, we Americans have booms and depressions. We have unemployment in the midst of want. We have famine at the same time we plow under our edible crops. Our markets surge up and our markets sag down. We try the Republicans, and then we try the Democrats. We fight for states' rights, and then we try to waive them by setting up a strong central government. We adopt pacifism, 
and it goes and gets us into a world war under circumstances which come close to bringing about our quick defeat. But we hasten to become militarists in order to assure a future of peace. We boast that we are Christian, rational, and possessed of organized law, and we demonstrate at home and abroad by our behavior in myriad forms, by our vital statistics that we are barbaric and irrational and that our law is chaos. Our society is manic-depressive, It has not yet been compelled by circumstance into a paranoid form of united action, but it may be. We have paid a great deal of lip service to liberty, but we have lost much of our liberty in the sense that it was intended first because our goods wants, because our goods wants caused us to set up an industrial society in which interdependence is so extensive that personal freedom had to be sacrificed to maintain it. I like I like that last part. Yeah. So we lost we lost much of our liberty in the sense that it was intended because our goods once caused us to step in in which interdependence is so extended the personal freedom could be sacrificed to maintain. John, you just started breaking up really bad. Um okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, now I can hear you. Sort of that last thing you read. Maybe you can repeat that. Uh, Yeah, it said, We have paid a, a great deal of lip service to liberty, but we have lost much of our liberty in the sense that it was intended, first, because our goods once caused us to set up an industrial society in which interdependence is so extensive that personal freedom had to be sacrificed to maintain it. Hmm. So... True. So, on that note, and keep going here because there is a thread here that we are going through. This is this is from the chapter widening knowledge and thought. Uh, from Charles Beard's Basic History of the United States. This is a great chapter in in toto, but um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously. I would definitely uh, say if anybody wants to get a copy of of an interesting and decent book that kind of tells the history of the United States, I would recommend this one. Um, Because he, he is very biased. He is anti. He is anti-monopolist, anti-industrialist, and um, I can't. I didn't know the guy, so I can't say for certain if he was really for real about that or not. But it is a. It is. He does bring up a lot of things. In fact, he wrote the book, the uh, the economic interpretation of the Constitution. I'm sure you've heard of that book, Chris. Yes. Is that one? Is that the one that goes into a lot of the activities of the founding fathers and and how they were basically setting up the Constitution to benefit their landowners? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had like these uh, what would typify like a Ponzi scheme going on at the time. Yes. I can't remember the 
the, all the particulars about it. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, what's the name of that so, one again? I, sorry about that. This is uh, tr- the Beards's basic history of the United States. I got that, but there was uh, oh basic. I got the history of the United States, and then there's the 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 re- uh, one about the did the, oh, e- econi- the chapter- economics of the oh that that. Oh, the, yeah, I'm not going to read from that, but if, if anybody wants to pick up a copy of that book, the book is called An Economic Interpretation of the, of the Constitution. Okay. But um, uh, this is from the chapter Widening Knowledge and Thought. Uh, more or le- uh, He says here, uh, <clears throat> though American life was not so complicit, uh, I'm sorry. Though American life was not so complicated in his day, the first president of the United States had been conscious of the role that knowledge must play in a progressive society. In his first annual address to Congress, President Washington had said, quote, There is nothing which can better deserve your patronage than the promotion of science and literature. Knowledge is in every country the surest basis of public happiness in one which the measures of government receive the impressions so immediately from the sense of the community as in ours, it is proportionally essential. To the security of a free constitution, it it contributes in various ways. When the 200th anniversary of this birth was celebrated in 1932, his desire was being realized in part. The people of the United States had at their disposal a wealth of knowledge of things physical and human, science and literature, to use for the purposes of civilization, if they could. More or less affected by the new knowledge ran currents of thought about its implications. As the continent was rounded out and the inherited society of farms and small towns was transformed into a continental nation of closely integrated parts. In these trends of thought, two theories or interpretations competed for supremacy. One placed the individual at the center of interest and made the individual enterprise the primary source of invention, progress, wealth, and the national greatness. The other emphasized society and general welfare as the controlling concern and insisted that the individual, however enlightened and powerful, owed his existence, his language, most of his knowledge, and his opportunities to the society in which he lived and worked. Both were used by powerful interests in American society. To the first line of thought, the name individualism was given. This was a new word that first came into play in the 19th century. It was used by uh, de Tocqueville in his book, Democracy in America, published in English translation in 1835. As he employed the word, it meant a kind of individual anarchy, the conduct of any person who arbitrarily cut himself off from his family, friends, and society. Near the middle of the 19th century, economists took up the the new idea, individualism, and built a whole system of thought around it. About the same time, reinforcement idea came from natural science. In 1859, the English scientist Charles Darwin published the origin of the species, mainly, I'm sorry, the origin of species, mainly emphasizing biology and the struggle of the individual animal for existence, a kind of biological war of each against all. In his later work, The Descent of Man, published in 1871, Darwin definitely 
connected man with the kingdom of lower animals and again stress on the struggle for individual existence. Darwin himself was cautious in his statements respecting the role of the individual in evolution. But the Darwinians in the United States and other countries made dogmas of his speculations, maintaining that they were truths beyond argument. Consequently, when Americans released from the strain of their civil war, rushed to the conquest in the of the continent and immediately went into the business of trying to get rich quickly, they had ready use for a theory and an ideology that justified the strong in accumulating all the wealth that they could in any way not too outrageous and in doing what they liked with their possessions. In 1865, Man, you're breaking up really bad. Power. Soon after. Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, you started really breaking up bad. Okay, I said, uh, let's go back. Darwin himself was cautious in his statements respecting the role of the individual in evolution, but the Darwinians in the United States and other countries made dogmas of his speculations, maintaining that they were truths beyond argument. Consequently, when the Americans released from the strain of their civil war rushed to the conquest of the continent and, and impetuously went into the business of trying to get rich quickly, they had ready use for a theory and an ideology that justified the strong in accumulating all the wealth they could in any way not too outrageous and in doing what they liked with their possessions. Between 1865 and 1900, this theory of individualism was worked out by many American writers of marked intellectual power who published articles and big books on the subject. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, what are you saying? These are some of the ideas of uh, Tocqueville? No. Well, well, when when Alexis uh, de Tocqueville came over here, he, he wrote his book, Democracy in America, which was partially a critique and partially observation of American society uh, coming from a Frenchman. And what he experienced here, he described as rugged individualism. So this, this particular body of work as uh, Alexis de Tocqueville is, is um, supposedly really influential among modern self-described conservatives, from what I understand. Um, I'd say it it kind of goes into both spheres of thought. Um, it's basically the beginning of the use of the word democracy, too. Okay. Like in the sense of in the sense of America, as opposed to republicanism, it kind of kicks off that idea of American America being this democratic. Republic, so it aids in that thought process well. Right now, because of the emphasis on uh, is what you'll is what you'll hear this oft repeated is that uh, oh we're not a democracy we're a republic, and so I, I have haven't read the Tocqueville. I, I just kind of gather from what I hear about it, but it's kind of like where 
it, it, it's sort of like this uh, text that's used to kind of get the definitions for what you're talking about if you're a self-described conservative or someone of that bent. You're trying to get some... Uh, yeah, it's it's you know like I said, it's just a description of the time period. It's kind of this out, you know, al- allegedly. I always like to pepper it with allegedly here. He allegedly he's he's writing this from an outsider's perspective of what he saw in America at that time, and it kind of you know once it was published in English, it kind of aids. What it does, it's kind of it was kind of like a cultural aid because like we were talking about in in the talk you know from the other day people aren't really there's not too many people that are self-aware of their Mm self-awareness so so if you read a book about how about like let's let's say somebody observes you let's say somebody writes a book about lot in oklahoma and then you go and read that book and they make you aware of things that you weren't aware of about, you know, from a from an outside observation. Right. Maybe one, you become self-aware of those things or two, maybe you, you start – there were things that you didn't uh, participate in behavior-wise, but then you kind of adopt those things as kind of a colloquial uh, adoption, right? Right. Um Three, uh, you become self-aware of certain things, and then you become proud of those things. Um, uh, that's kind of that's kind of the idea that I get from it. It was like an outside reflection, and people got to read and kind of self-reflect, and then say, "Well, yeah, we're proud of our rugged individualism, or we're proud of our our kind of." Uh, a lot of the Europeans tended to think at that time there was a you know this always a divide and conquer between countries and other countries that the Americans were low class you know mm-hmm. you know and then you become proud of that type of thing of course that type of thing is always hyped on Patriot Radio like you know Alex Jones will talk about how the Americans were more rugged and outspoken than that's why we whooped the British's ass, right? Right. It wasn't because there was handshakes and Freemasonic uh, backroom deals going on to, for a make-believe war. It was because America was, ha, ha, you know, was tough as nails. I'm not saying guys guys weren't tough as nails, but um, I'm going to guess that there were British soldiers just as tough as any American soldier. Probably, if you if you were to go to into any army today, you think that there's guys out there that are just collectively tougher than other guys. Guys in the military uh, worldwide are tough guys. Right. Yeah. It's it's. Uh, but of course, our our side is always has the toughest guys. That's because we had, that's because we had freedom on our side, Chris. And spe- <laughs> speaking. Speaking of freedom, let's keep going here with some quotes. Um, let's get let's get to the behind the scenes part of this, and um, I'll read the quote first, and then tell you what I'm reading out of. With man's exercise of thought, 
are inseparably connected freedom and responsibility. Man assumes his proper rank as a moral agent when with a sense of the limitations of his nature arise the consciousness of freedom and of the obligations accompanying its exercise, the sense of duty and of the capacity so to perform it. To suppose that man ever imagined himself not to be a free agent until he had argued himself into that belief would be to suppose that he was in that below the brutes, for he, like them, is conscious of his freedom to act. Experience alone teaches him that this freedom of action is limited and controlled, and when what is outward to him restrains him and limits this freedom of action, he instinctively rebels against it as a wrong. The rule of duty and the materials of experience are derived from an acquaintance with the conditions of the external world in which the faculties are exerted, and thus the problem of man involved those of nature and God. Our freedom, we learn by experience, is determined by an agency external to us. Our happiness is intimately dependent on the relations of the outward world and on the moral character of its ruler. Yeah. And, and that is from page 686 of Morals and Dogma by Albert Pike. Hmm. Okay. Okay, so um, once again, he makes a distinction there between freedom and happiness. Um, these are kind of things that are kind of blended together and synonymous nowadays. I would say. And um, so as we get deeper into this conversation here, um, on that note with with freedom and feeling once again with happiness i got a dostoevsky quote uh, once again it's from notes it's from his book notes from underground he says and what is and what is it in us that is mellowed by civilization all it does i'd say is to develop in man a capacity to feel a greater variety of sensations and nothing absolutely nothing else and through this development, man will yet learn how to enjoy bloodshed. Why, it has already happened. Civilization has made man, if not always more bloodthirsty, at least more viciously, more horribly bloodthirsty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then there's this other great quote. I thought you would like this one. This goes in line with the, Dar with the, with the idea of Darwinian and individualism. He says, once it's been proved that you're descended from an ape, it's no use pulling face. Just accept it. Once they prove to you that a single droplet of your own fat must be dearer to you than a 100,000 of your fellow human beings, and consequently that all so-called virtues and duties are nothing but ravings and prejudices, then accept that too, because there's nothing to be done. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, on that note, Michael Kamen, Mystic Chords of Memory. He says, What ultimately matters most, however, is not the comparative newness of most so-called traditions, irrespective of place, but the uses to which those traditions are put and by whom. We shall find that in the United States, more often than not, memory has served as a bulwark for social and political stability, a means of valorizing resistance to change. Such a pattern, however, is neither inevitable nor universal. In Great Britain, for example, from 1780 to the 1860s, radicals relied upon the rhetoric of patriotism as a means of possessing the past and consequently as a weapon in their arsenal of opposition. Folklore enthusiasts in France from 1850 till 1890 wished to demonstrate that popular traditions had not only been a source of continuity and stability in the past, but also a vehicle for change and a means of enriching the cultural life of the people as well as the nation. It is the perceptions of tradition and the uses of memory, not their mere existence, that ultimately matter. Mm-hmm. I'm leading up to something here, just so you know. Here we go. George Washington, 1732 to 1799, was a steadfast supporter of American masonry. Although he took his first degrees in the lodge at Fredericksburg, Virginia, on November 4, 1752, at age 20, he was thereafter an infrequent attender of lodge meetings. Still, he publicly supported the craft most of his life. Writing on August 22, 1790 to King David's Lodge Number 1 in Newport, Rhode Island, he said, Being persuaded a just application of the principles on which Freemasonry is founded must be pr- promotive of virtue and public prosperity. I shall always be glad to advance the interests of this society and be considered by them a deserving brother. Although Mason certainly make much of of Washington's affiliation, he was offered the leadership of American Masonry at one point and turned it down. In 1798, he severely criticized the Masonically affiliated Jacobin clubs and the the notorious Illuminati as diabolical and pernicious. In a letter to Reverend G.W. Snyder written at Mount Vernon on September 25, 1798, only 15 months before his death, Washington thanked Snyder for sending him a copy of Professor John Robeson's book, Proofs of a Conspiracy. Hmm. He says, I have heard much of the nefarious and dangerous plan and doctrines of the Illuminati, but never saw the book until you were pleased to send it to me. I must correct an error that you have run into of my presiding over the English lodges in this country. The fact is, I presided over none, nor have I been in one or more than once or twice within the last 30 years. Not 33. (laughs) I was about to say that myself. Washington also defended American masonry, however, saying that in his opinion, none of the American lodges were contaminated with the principles ascribed to the Society of the Illuminati. American Masons place great weight in the distinction between British Masonry, from which the American version sprang, and European or Continental Masonry. Mm-hmm. 
even Masonic critic historian Nesta Webster acknowledges these differences. I have always clearly differentiated between British and continental masonry, showing the former to be an honorable association, not only hostile to to subversive doctrines, but a strong supporter of law and order and religion. On October 24, 1798, Washington wrote to Reverend Snyder again, felt compelled to offer a further explanation of his position. Okay, I know you probably heard this quote, Chris. Maybe many people have heard this quote. I don't know uh, what what someone's reading here, but um, to me, this sounds like an endorsement of the Illuminati and Jacobism. I don't know how people think otherwise. He says, "It was not my intention to doubt that the doctrines of the Illuminati and principles of Jacobism had not spread in the United States." On the contrary, no one is more truly satisfied of this than I am. I mean, did I do? do am I reading that wrong? Is there is there something I'm missing there? Read it one more time. He says it was not my intention to doubt that the doctrines of the Illuminati and principles of Jacobism had not spread in the United States. On the contrary, no one is more truly satisfied of this than I am. He's satisfied. Maybe he's not necessarily saying that he's satisfied that it happened, but he's satisfied with the fact that, in the knowledge of the fact that it happened, I guess. I get, I mean, people people have eaten. Have have used that as like, oh yeah, look, George Washington was anti Illuminati, and I'm I, I always read that, and I'm like going, um, am I missing something in that statement there? It sounds like he's saying that he's happy that those doctrines have spread. Well, I yeah, it could, I guess it could be taken that way, <laughs> but not ne- maybe not necessarily. So. Masonry was much more commonplace in the day in those days than it is today. <coughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. In fact, most of America's founding fathers were Masons. According to Manley P. Hall of the fifty five members of the Constitutional Convention, all but five were Masons. <laughs> According to a nineteen fifty one Masonic edition of the Holy Bible, twenty four of George Washington's major generals were Masons, as were 30 of his 33 Brigadier Generals. Of 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, 53 were Master Masons. According to the Masonic publication The New Age, it was Masons who brought on the war, and it was Masonic Generals who carried it through to a successful conclusion. In fact, the famous Boston Tea Party, which precipitated the war, was actually a recessed meeting of a Masonic lodge. According to Manly P. Hall, the Boston Tea Party was arranged around a chowder supper at the home of the Bradley brothers, who were Masons. Mother Bradley kept the water hot so that they could wash off the disguises. The participants were from the St. Andrew's Lodge in Boston, and they were led by the junior warden, Paul Revere. 
French historian Bernard Fay said a band of redskins were seen leaving a tavern known as the Green Dragon or the Arms of Freemasonry on the afternoon of December 16, 1773, and then seen returning, yet none were seen to leave again. Now, this is an interesting statement here by this uh, either naive or complicit author. Does this mean that most of America's founding fathers were part of a, some gigantic evil conspiracy? No, not at all. The secrecy of the Masonic Lodge was the perfect cover for revolutionary activities. Few of these men, if any, knew of the plan of which only the leaders of Masonry were aware. Most believed that they were simply involved in the cause of gaining independence from a tyrant. Masonry was, to most of them, as it is to most of the membership today, merely a fraternal organization promoting social skills and providing fellowship to its members. Okay. So if the Freemasons are a secret society that's is to be regarded as a do-gooder organization, why would you ever see any of their good works published in a public format like a newspaper or on the media? I think well, why would they question. have to keep why would they have to keep anything secret at this point then? Well, I mean, if if that is what their secret is, oh, we go about secretly doing good things in society and keeping them secret. You would never want them published, would you? But and but you can find all kinds of examples where you'll see that the Masons did this or that or the other thing. Some kind of char- charitable work or something. Not all the time, but there's plenty of examples out there of that. Absolutely. Uh, Once again, referring to the book Secret Societies of America's Elite by Stephen Sora. The American Revolution was fought by a network of spies, diplomats, smugglers, Freemasons, and slave traders. Although they were rarely united politically, they did share an interest in the means to accomplish their interest. Masonic ties allowed conspirators from England, New England, New Carolinas to make critical moves behind the scenes. One prominent example is Benjamin Franklin, who moved freely through Masonic circles that stretch from London, Paris, and Nantes. Franklin was able to stir dissent amongst the British, bring in supplies from the Netherlands, and ultimately bring the French into the war. From Britain, Franklin enlisted members of a entity known as the Hellfire Club, whose orgiastic activities would shock even modern Britain to muster public support against the war and for the Sons of Liberty. Though a smuggling network that operated in the Caribbean from Bermuda and from Europe, America's sea captains supplied the revolutionaries with munitions. Franklin's Masonic connections in France were, were wealthy slave traders, often Huguenots, who operated through lodge systems that reached everywhere their ships sailed. Friends were also found amongst aristocratic classes in France, with masonry again paving the way, even as the royals were ardent Catholics. 
In, in a most audacious move, a wealthy French family bribed the British admiral heading the war effort to deny support to, the Corn, to Cornwallis at Yorktown. At the same time, the French contingent led by the Knights of the Sovereign Order of Malta supplied the American side. The American Revolution was won not on the battlefield as much as it was in the secret meetings of numerous conspirators like Benjamin Franklin and his Lodge brothers. Okay, that's what isn't that what we just said? Mm-hmm. The American Revolution was won not on the battlefield as much as in the secret meetings of numerous conspirators like Benjamin Franklin and his Lodge brothers. With the war won, the architects of the new republic gave birth to a government steeped in Masonic symbolism, while Washington founded an aristocratic society where breeding and heredity was the most important ticket for admission. Strange? Yes, but less so as one understands the maelstrom of the 18th century world in which the old ways of religious and and aristocratic authority were being challenged on a regular basis. Uh, the society they're speaking of, he doesn't mention it here, but it was the uh, the Cincinnati, the Order of the Cincinnati, the Cincinnati, like the Illuminati. Hmm. That's where you get the name uh, Cincinnati. Wow. Um. Anyways, this is a great book. Everybody should get a copy of The Secret Societies of America's Elite. But basically what it says is uh, it goes into all the names of the real families behind the stuff. The Livingstons, the Van Rensselaers, the Van Cortlands, um, uh, how they're all connected to Freemasonry, uh, the Clintons, uh, the Morrises, uh a little bit later on, the Astors and how they're all connected through there. And you make your way up into the age of of capitalism. And you uh, end up into the world of the Carnegies and the Rockefellers and so on and so forth. And that's where you get into the age of capitalism with its Darwinistic thing, with its uh, with its uh, emphasis on individualism, and and interestingly enough, uh, as as you've seen in. Um, that book, The Mystic Chords of Memory by Michael Kim, the, the Rockefellers, of course, took a particular interest in uh, this idea of tradition and heritage and, um, the you know, basically the myths of America and kind of took them on, right, mm-hmm. through their foundations funded this idea of American heritage, which it didn't exist prior to them kind of – him and uh, Henry Ford – um, another mega capitalist industrialist taking on this idea of promoting um, uh, of promoting this, right? You read the uh, the section on the what was it, the Freedom Train? That yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so 
so this the same type of stuff freedom individualism heritage tradition all of that stuff was redefined repackaged remolded by the industrialists by the capitalists um, and they basically took stewardship of these ideas um, I'm going to read a part out of this book here uh, this, this book is called Rockefeller Power America's Chosen Family by Meyer Cutts and um it says, the making of Rockefeller power. Rockefeller's great wealth came from the operations of Standard Oil, the great monopoly he created in the 1870s to tie together the oil industry's three elements, pup- pumping crude oil, refining it, and transporting the products to consumers throughout the world. Standard Oil had brought order to an unstable industry cursed with overproduction and subject to wild economic fluctuations and controlled it with steady growth and guaranteed profits. Rockefeller summarized his organizational innovations with this comment. The combination is here to stay. Individualism is gone, never to return. Profit and philanthropy were Rockefeller's highest duties. His philosophy was, a man should make all he can and give away all he can. By the turn of the... He's also very famous for saying... uh, Real power is controlling everything and owning nothing. Uh By the turn of the century, however, while Rockefeller was sought after for his philanthropy, he was not honored for it. Instead, public esteem for him was low. Brought to that estate by Henry DeMarest, Lloyd, Ida M. Tarbell, and other muckrakers who published accounts of his business operations in such such mass circulation magazines as Atlantic Monthly and McClure's, his name stood for neither philanthropy nor oil, but for blood money. Alan Nevins would explain later that Rockefeller had been an organizational genius and the founder of the modern corporation – who had done what he did because he had to. Nevins would demonstrate that Rockefeller forces had been better organizers, administrators, and technicians than their rivals. Rockefeller's large, well-planned facilities, combined with his attention to detail, provided maximum economy and efficiency. His extensive capital had funded research leading to the technological breakthroughs and had been a terrific and had been of terrific advantages in a series of industrial wars. But in the early 1900s, he was despised throughout the United States. Attention focused on the muckrakers' charges that tactics he had employed to subjugate and ruin rivals had been immoral. These had included secretly obtaining from the railroads not only rebates on standard oil shipping, but also large percentages of competitors' fees, forcing shippers to deny competitors' access access to markets, choking crude oil from competitors, buying competitors in secret, price-cutting and industrial espionage. Tactics were typical of the robber baron era. It is well for us to remember it is well for us to remember, David Rockefeller would write many years later, echoing the judgment of Alan Evans, that the evolution of business ethics in the United States was a relatively slow process. Corporations did things in the 1870s and 1880s which advancing standards made clearly improper. 
Rockefeller's rivals in the oil fields had been predatory and petty cats who had been swallowed up by Standard Oil because of their lack of discipline in battle. The business is merely a survival of the fittest. Okay, this is David Rockefeller telling... Yeah, you're cutting out now, dude. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Rockefeller's rivals in the oil fields had been predatory, greedy, and petty capitalists who had been swallowed up by Standard Oil because of their lack of discipline in the battlefield. This is what Rockefeller says. He says, The growth of a large business is merely a survival of the fittest, Rockefeller told a Sunday school class. (laughs) And this this is one of his most famous quotes here. Okay, right here. He says, quote, The American beauty rose can be produced only by sacrificing the buds that grow up around it. This is not an evil tendency in business. It is merely the working out of a law of nature and a law of God. But there was more to Rockefeller's defense than social Darwinism. He had been trusted to honor his agreements with the banks and the railroads and Standard Oil. He said has no water in its stock, has never issued bonds or stocks through bankers, no underwriting syndicates of selling schemes, keeps 60,000 men employed, pays well, cares for them when they're sick, pensions them when they're old, brought a million dollars a week into the country. Finally, Rockefeller refused to attend the debate. God gave me my money, became his answer to his critics. The public was not easily appeased by Rockefeller's devotion to philanthropy. Amid general distrust of his motives, his gifts provoked controversy. Um, anyways, it goes on to talk more about that. But the, the point being that um, simultaneously, while uh, Rockefeller seek to crush the individual and the idea of individualism as far as a business owner goes or someone owning a being a wildcatter in the oil industry he himself was the exemplary um, iconic figure of individualism capitalism survival of the fittest right right yeah now as far as quotes go I just have one more and then we can kind of talk it out. Here is what we've seen. Um, this is from a book called The Octopus by Frank Norris. It's a fictional book of real event. Uh, it's called The Octopus, A Story of California, and it's got this quote in it. And this is from the 18... When is this? The 18... Or is 1910? 1910. He says, They own us, these taskmasters. They own our homes. They own our legislators. We cannot escape from them. There is no redress. We defeat them by the ballot box. They own the ballot box. We are told we must look to the courts for a redress. They own the we know them for what they are, ruffians in politics, ruffians in finance, ruffians in law, ruffians in... You're breaking out, John. and tricksters. Can you hear me now? Yeah, you started 
just breaking up. I couldn't even hear what you're saying. Okay. Quote from The Octopus by Frank Norris. They own us, taskmasters of ours. They own our homes. They own our legislatures. We cannot escape from them. There's no redress. We are told we can defeat them by the ballot box. They own the ballot box. We are told that we must look to the courts for redress. They own the courts. We know them for what they are. Ruffians in politics, ruffians in finance, ruffians in law, ruffians in trade, bribers, swindlers, and tricksters. No outrage too great to daunt them. No petty larceny too small to shame them. Despoiling a government treasury of a million dollars, yet picking the pockets of a farmhand of the price of a loaf of bread. Now, with Freemasonry and the large corporate families starting this country with the blessing of the crown in England and then moving on into the age of capitalism and someone like John D. Rockefeller giving carte carte blanche to run his company as he saw fit. So whether it's standard oil of the early 20th century or Goldman Sachs of the modern day, the government just can't seem to like take these guys down no matter how much public outcry there is, like there's no, there's nothing that these people can't do. Right. Right. Yet. I mean, it, when, and if there, there are certain people out there, whether it's real or fake is, is neither here nor there. If the government wants to take somebody down, they'll do it. Sure. Right. Right. So, so like a, so like the the point that I'm kind of getting at here, and I, I think you'll concur, is we see through the founding of this history that there's there's these connections that are made, uh, through, whether it's through Freemasonry and then on up into the capitalist survival of the fittest Darwinist, um, and secret deals are met out. These public statements are made. Uh, John John D. Rockefeller was a multi-billionaire back when a billion dollars was actually a billion dollars. Real money back then. Yeah, so on and so forth. Um, is all of that freedom? Was was any of that stuff that, that I just talked about there, would you consider any of that real freedom? Because is is freedom making, like, like an and you know, I'm sure it's, there's some logical argument that somebody could figure out. Well, yeah, actually, that's what real freedom is. Okay, well, not to the average person. The average person thinks thinks there's a level playing field, and the level playing field is freedom, and it's the freedom for them to, you know, have a cell phone and to you know be able to watch Netflix and to, you know, be able to go to Krispy Kreme donuts or whatever. Um, but the culture and the society and everything that's really important, there's no real freedom there. There's no, um, uh, like I said in that octopus quote, 
there's rulers and taskmasters and and they're going to tell they're going to give you uh they're because because the word freedom is has no definition at all those are the people who who will culturally dictate to you what freedom is that's right yeah Now, interestingly enough, you could kind of look at it this way, that the idea of this um, kind of leisure-obsessed individual and someone who identifies leisure as the epitome of individualism would be the perfect person to economically and culturally. To to what ec- economically and culturally? I, I missed. You cut broke, dropped out. To 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 control economically oh, yeah. and culturally. Right. Yeah, I I, I tend to think that um, if if you're going to define something. You have to put it. You you have to derive the definition out of a proper context of what you know what what the conditions of the or, or, or where you're living, your culture, your society, and culture. If that's you know like what we're always told that oh well you know you're free. Here's some examples like uh, Sir J. Brin the and who the other guy the Google founder. You know you can come up with something you know just work hard study and you can develop the next earth-shattering algorithm that will you know take over the internet or the killer app (laughs) or something like that and that's it it, that is like a credo of uh slaves it's like oh well one day if i work hard enough i can attain that kind of status and it's kind of like this uh it's also we talked about this before on some recent calls, how, you know, you have this um, enlightenment period. And then so things are starting to get redefined. And this is sort of the push forward is the Catholic Church and the oppressive uh, religious constructs people were laboring under. And then here's this enlightenment to kind of set us all free. And so then you then they bring in this uh, materialism along with the industrial revolution. So, so you have to, you have to, uh, construct a, a narrative for people to, uh, sort of be motivated under, right. To, to sort of have something to strive for instead of heaven or afterlife. It's some, uh, some earthly worldly materialistic kind of ideal to struggle for. And if that idea hasn't completely taken hold, I don't know what ha- what would because at least to some degree one degree or another everyone that regards themselves as an american is striving for this ideal and we all like believe in it to one degree or another like we could achieve the success or living the dream or you know having that um it, th- that uh, McMansion or whatever it is that we we will uh, one day obtain and then regard that as like we've achieved some degree of success. 
and then how is that defined or what you know um and there's this thing that alan watt says frequently that i really like it's like you know in order to get a kind of a just paraphrasing what he says is that you know if you want to like get anywhere with it, like in these ideas or political movements or like what it is we're kind of trying to you know sort out is that first of all you have to de- you have to de- decide or figure out what your values are as an individual what do you really value what are the things that are important to uh retain and what are some things that are you know superfluous like we don't you know and we as as the average person don't get to define that it's defined for us but so you you have a situation where now people have bought into this idea of you know ob- obtaining things property goods and that being intimately tied into this idea of a success or uh, achievement and then um of course too we've we've touched on in the past about you know norman vincent peel and the sort of motivational speakers and how how closely related that is to uh preaching or the gospel or and then of course you know you have today where uh, a lot of the mainstream or the majority of the mainstream televangelists really put a lot of emphasis on, you know, God is going to bless you if you work hard and then you you do the right thing. And this idea of salvation, I should say, and prosperity being int- int- intricately woven together as some sort of... Um, it, and, and this is uh, where... I think where a lot of things intersect, but um, they they've uh, also no. It's a let me say this. It's like a common. It's a common thread. So you can have the religious or the believers or the hope. You know, hopers in an after. Uh, you know, striving for an afterlife. But at the same time, too, they buy into the materialistic pursuits, and then you also have the secular humanist idealists that also have that as some sort of like achievable ideal of um you know prosperity working hard making it in society achieving status and doing all the things as sort of like a a a a replacement for the afterlife or or hope in an afterlife or something like that so no matter what the kind of philosophy or religious belief or anything that you adopt it does have that comment. Uh, it, I'm talking about in the mainstream. They could they could accommodate those ideals, you know, the the materialist ideals, and um, so yeah. So like back to Alan, what Alan Watt says is like, well, you know, we have to figure out what what is it as people, as individuals, that that we value. Like what are what are the things like if you want to change things or do something different or kind of uh, you see things that are going in the wrong direction? It's like what well what are those things? What what do you want to have as preeminent or important? And what things aren't so important? And I think that's like a a very good question. I think that's a probably a core question. You know, like what. 
you know, like what, okay, so if you reject the authority of the state, what does it leave you with? Because there are definitely discernible uh, benefits of a organ. There's even definite benefits from a, an authoritarian rule in its ability to organize people. But I, I believe that you know authoritarianism, fascism, and all this stuff. Those are just term. Those are just terms, and they really don't uh, have any true meaning as they are used in the modern day. I think we have aspects of all of those isms incorporated in the system. And, um, you know, there isn't any lot of effort put forth in defining these things and what they actually mean. But I think it would, if, if people would focus in on like, okay, what what do we really value as people? That would be a worthy pursuit. I, I, I think that's a, that's a really important, uh, um, thing to figure out, uh, you know, other than trying to determine, well, what sort of political construct or idea or belief or something is better suited to so-called happiness. Well, it's like, well, well first you got to figure out what makes people happy or what's going to make you happy, you know, but then that's always somehow assumed that, uh, the things that we're told that are going to make us happy or are going to make us happy, like success, achievement, obtaining things, atta- obtaining. And I think a lot of it has to do with obtaining status because I, I really don't think the average person is that sort of taken with materialistic goods. I think they're more taken with the sort of status that they can, um, you know, bring to to other people's perceptions of them, you know? So it's like, you know, first you take an individual, you strip away the things that build, truly build character and truly build identity, like community, family, the extended family. You, re, you, you denigrate those things, you put a small price tag on those, and then you uplift these other ideals. And then you end up with a person that's striving to fill that void in their life and to come and and to enter into this system with uh, this um, sort of fool's errand, this just endless pursuit that will never bring happiness and will never bring any any resolution to any of this uh, internal conflict that that most of us have. And um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, I agree with everything that you're saying. Another interesting point while you were making it that popped up was that uh, you're talking about materialism. And is, isn't it interesting that both capitalism and communism re- rely on the philosophy of materialism um, very strongly, um, even though they're on opposite ends of the spectrum? Uh uh, I agree that you as a human being, you, you'd have to, uh, as an individual, to use that word, um, you would have to figure out what your values are, what you, um, uh, 
I, th- I think one of the most dangerous things uh, in the time that I've been alive is not having things explained or not being able to find out what the actual definition of something is. Um, I think for me personally, on my own personal journey, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, is when you actually learn what something is and then you go, wait a minute, that's what that means? I thought my whole life that that that, that meant this. You mean it doesn't mean that? And I think, you know, if you're able to teach, you know, children or or like you know we we try to do here having the having these discussions and passing these audios around to people is kind of get down to the brass tacks the foundational elements of certain things instead of just kind of blindly accepting certain definitions or certain ideas as they're updated for the current time period Right, and choosing not to adopt any kind of label. Like, I don't adopt any label for myself. I no. don't believe that you do either. You don't you, you don't wear a label, any kind of label. No, no. and I'll admit in the past I have. I, I have thought of myself as something or other in different time periods of my life. John but Bercher. the interesting... <laughs> I, I, I never was a John Birch Society member, even though I do own many John Birch Society books still to this day. Um, <laughs> yes, the but but the um, but it's interesting once you get to a particular. Uh, I don't even know. I, I think we may have talked about this before. It's like, it's like if you're smart, and I, I consider myself a smart person. I consider I, I take a lot of pride in in uh, the knowledge that I've accumulated and I'm happy with the fact that I will not not being proud in the sense that I'm boastful about it but I'm proud that I'll be able to pass that down to my children and you know hopefully people listening to this will be able to get something out of the research that we've done um, as soon as you adopt a label if you're smart enough to realize that by the time you've adopted the the, the label you're you're able to discard it that quickly mm-hmm. because you real you sort of realize that the labels themselves mean that you see I, I'm all I'm all for setting boundaries I, I'm for I'm for setting boundaries and rules on certain things um, but I'm not for the idea of setting boundaries and rules on on the on the f- idea of of having the knowledge of something. Now, there's a this this is a much deeper conversation than I w- we would be able to get into tonight. But I think physically experiencing something and experiencing something in the realm of the mind are two different things. And I think that's essentially what we're kind of talking about here with freedom. Uh, if you want to get down to the essence of it, it's like. There's certain things that I'm aware of that take place in life, but I don't need to physically experience those things personally just to say that I have the awareness of them or 
I don't need to justify it in the realm of my mind, say, well, I have the freedom to be able to go do that. Um, I should probably consider it at some point since I have the freedom to do it. See, because people tend to think of something in the – when you're talking about freedom, like I was saying, the connotation is is towards – it leans more towards liberalism and leans less towards conservatism if you're going to put it into that context. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking of those two terms as um, kind of the medium of the balance, not in the terms of the political words conservatism or liberta- uh, liberalism. Um, but if you think of freedom, people automatically think of of the more extreme uh, uh, the more extreme side of the liberal end of it. What hardly gets factored into something is the freedom not to do something. Mm-hmm. You see, it's like, yes, I have the freedom to go do, you know, this type of stuff, but I'm glad I have the freedom and, and the freedom of the mind not to do not to do those things, not to take part in that type of behavior. And, the, and you know, whatever it may be, I'm not just saying, you know, anything um, vice ridden or extracurricular. Um, whatever it may be, I, you know, there's certain things uh, that, you know, we, we deal with just philosophically philosophically, or just um, indifference of opinion. You know, some some it's like the flat earth thing, you know, it's like, oh, well, you believe that, you know, you believe that that the Boston bombing, you know, uh, was fake. So you you're probably more prone to being a flat earther. Mm-hmm. And it's about examining things as they come along and then, you know, being able to make the decision through examination and through defining something. It's, it's not about just, uh, you know, more so kind of blanket things. And I, I think, unfortunately, as, as we've gone along, as we've, you know, the more we've talked about this is, like I said, you're dealing with two realms here, the realm of the mind and the realm of the physical. And um, I think what's being manipulated uh, a lot of the time in this world is to get people to act on the freedom that exists in their mind uh, and and manifest that into the physical world because that will create a confused and chaotic person who is much more easy to manipulate. Yeah, I think those things are tied at the hip. You know, if you if you look at the educational system and you look at the kind of system as a whole and you incorporate the media um, movies television sort of popular fiction and all this other stuff there there is definitely seems to be a deliberate um, sort of 
catering to the lowest common denominator where it's it's cool now to be ignorant and it's cool to be relativistic in your thinking or reactionary and not uh, spend a lot of time going over why something might be reasonable to believe is sort of just um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the conditioning through entertainment it's like that lends itself to sort of flights of fancy right where you kind of go off into an imaginary realm and you kind of you, you can go off into imaginary realms and stay there uh, mentally for your whole life uh, and and that is possible by way of this thing called civilization. We're sort of shielded from a lot of the consequences of our actions, especially if someone is a uh, wealthy individual or, you know, like celebrities are. I do believe that celebrities are wealthy individuals. They are, they enjoy the trappings of wealth. I've heard some people say that, oh no, they don't really have all that money. It's like, I don't know, once you get upwards of multiple millions of dollars, it's it's your life is completely different than the average person but what i think that's important for celebrities to be wealthy is that they have a situation where their consequences and the, the consequences of their actions can be separated from their their person you know they can have uh, sort of a a free willing a free willing attitude towards sexual relationships toward relationships in general, and a lot of that can be um, all the, the the fallout and the consequences of it can be bought uh, taken care of with money. A lot of it, some of it can't, but a lot of it can, and that is instructive on one level because. Obviously, the conditions are set up so people follow celebrity and they worship, a, you know, practically worship celebrity. I mean, we're, you, you see a lot of people fall into that. And um, that I think that is um, important to realize when you're when you're talking about the society as a whole is that I think as things progress as long as and where we're at right now in 2017, it's like the average person has completely lost or maybe never never obtained the ability to to look at things rationally to think things through to look and and what's extremely difficult and what you see out there is a, is um is absent in a, in a lot of discourse is the ability to be objective and kind of remove yourself out of the anal of the equation for the sake of trying to get a correct answer and that and 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 none and none of this stuff is you know placed much value on these ideas and like you're saying yeah this this has a direct impact on people's ability to enjoy any kind of degree of freedom if you're always kind of subject to these 
uh, whims and notions and Im imaginary realms that have been constructed for you, are you, you, there's no way you can be free in any real sense. No, and I guess to kind of end, end this call is to just refer back to the, the part in Brave New World where John, where John the Savage tries to free the Epsilons or whatever and tells them, you know, you guys are free, you can go. And the the what the the conductor guy the the director takes him into his office and he's like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "These people don't even know what you're talking about. They have no concept of what freedom is." <laughs> no, and I don't think and, uh, the average and, and, person in and, and like, like we were saying, well, yeah, no, like we were saying in that um, that Eric Fromm quote earlier from. Uh, from um, uh, from what what's that book? Shoot, let me go over the book. What is it? Escape from Freedom. And he's talking about how how like that's all kind of bred out of you once you've been in school. Uh, the children, the children basically get the inability to cognate the idea of being free. You know, as soon as as soon as we're all we are all institutionalized, and it would take a, you know, and to add on to what he's saying there, I, I would say, it it takes, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm almost forty here, it takes forty years of life to try to get it back. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. It it is a struggle to try to get some of that back. And I don't feel like I've progressed that far along. I mean, I can't, I, I, I but then I, I cut myself some slack because I realize I'm aware and I'm self-aware and I'm aware of the environment that I was uh, reared in and that it, it set up to discourage being independent in thought and to step out uh, uh, to, to try to analyze things and get, uh, it's, it's, it's discouraged at every angle. And you're not going to make a lot of friends in uh, the wider circles, popular circles out there. It's just so discouraged. It's just like you can't question certain things. It's not it permitted. It's not part of the culture. It's not part, it's, not, it's just something that you don't do. No, it, it it's not. You know, it's interesting too. Like I said, we're going to have to talk about this on another call. But the in that Beards's history, uh, basic history of the United States, it kind of talks about how it was the goal of the country to be kind of knowledge based and like full of knowledge, or you know, full of um, you know. Uh, well-read people and by the end of the chapter he's basically saying that everybody is swimming in so much you know kind of what toffler talks about in future shock but he's talking about it in the 40s he's saying yeah people have so much information and so many books to read that there's that you can't absorb it all 
and it actually hasn't really succeeded in making people much smarter. It's also interesting that if you go around the country, especially here in California, you'll see a lot of libraries named after Andrew Carnegie. Mm-hmm. Great because, man, right? Yes, it was his goal. I mean, it was he made it his philanthropic goal to put public libraries in everywhere. So... Not that I don't love the library. I love the library, um, but um, you got to be suspicious of what the reason libraries were actually put in for if uh, Andrew Carnegie was the one who started most of them. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, but, yeah, we'll, we'll have to go into that in a, another time. Um, well, Chris, thank you for uh, uh, doing this call with me. This was a good one. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, cool. Well, um, stay free. Live free or die. All right, yeah. It's too bad we didn't get around to uh, quoting from uh, I.P. Freely's seminal work of Rivers of Freedom. (laughs) 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 Seminal work. uh, Rivers of Freedom by I.P. Freely, yes. Oh, yeah, I tacked that on. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll end the call right here.
Drank a lot of water. I really have to go. People are waiting to tee off, and there's no restroom out here. Guys, how many times has this happened to you? Come on, you know you can't hold it in that long. Don't worry, I've got the perfect gift for you. Introducing the Euro Club, the discreet sanitary solution for your urgent relief. Created by a board-certified urologist, it looks like an ordinary golf club, but it contains a special reservoir built into the grip to relieve yourself. The Euro Club comes with a special towel to keep your privacy. And it appears to everyone that you're just checking out your club. At first it seems comical, but believe me, when you really have to go, it's a lifesaver. Sanitary, leak-proof, easy to clean, and no more embarrassing moments in the bush. Dramatically improve your golf scores for only $49.95. And when you order now, get a second Euro Club for half price. That's two for only $74.92. Club now at 866-999-4-EURO. That's 866-999-4-EURO. The Euro Club, the only club in your bag guaranteed to keep you out of the woods. (laughs) 